What's so infuriating is that not only do people want to live in an echo chamber, but they completely chastise you and shame you when you dare to step outside of it. Now, I personally don't care, but I do think that it prohibits conversation and therefore is a deterrent to progress. I realized that in order to be involved in this nonsense political game, you have to have a small ego and thick skin. And most people have one or the other, but not both. It's difficult to find that, but you can't have a big ego because it has to be about the solution and not you getting credit for it. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Folks, I have been doing the social media, alt media, round robin through the different groups, through the different platforms. And I was on with Mike Figueredo. I was on with Jimmy Dore. And I was on with my next guest, Jen Perlman, who has her show, Generational Change. And it was one of the most fun interviews I ever did. And for those of you who don't know who Jen is, she ran against Debbie, what's her name, Schultz. And she's down there in the beautiful state of Florida where DeSantis is doing everything he can to make it look bad. But here she is coming to my show, thank you very much, to allow me to talk to her because I am celebrating every time I find another candidate, another media person, someone that gets MMT. And she had me on to discuss it. And it was just a really great conversation. Jen is just a fantastic person. She had me in stitches the entire time. Her show is just fantastic. So if you guys get a chance, please check it out. We'll make sure you get links in the description. But with that, Jen, Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was hands down, I think, the best introduction I've ever gotten. And also, you have a really good audio voice. You have a really good radio voice. Well, thank you. I enjoy podcasting. Yeah. So much more than the video. And I do video, and I will get back to video. But the joy of doing audio is that you can really focus on the content and all the other affects, like somebody doesn't like the way your eyebrows are. Or they don't <laughs> like the fact that you've got a white beard. You look like Santa Claus. I am looking like his doppelganger. I could put the red and white suit on and start delivering presents. The belly's in the right shape. I've got it all going on. The dad bod, I'm <laughs> good to go. <laughs> so you're hiding is what you're saying. You're hiding on the radio. <laughs> exactly. I look great on radio. <laughs> Anyway, so look, when we were talking, one of the things that I found really refreshing was that you did run as a Democrat when you were running, and you do have all the progressive ideals, but you ran against the establishment. You ran against the buzzsaw of Debbie. I always say, what's her name, Schultz, because it's more fun. But Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is a favorite within the Democratic Party at least in the establishment realm, and it never turns out well. But I am curious, tell me about your experience running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. What was that like? First of all, I'm a little older than your typical squad person. So when people are looking at someone like, let's say, AOC, it's a very different position in life, right? So I don't need this job and I don't need this money. And so for me, it was really just a matter of taking a stand against her. And the truth is, she's only five years older than me. So she's my peer and we're only one degree removed. I've seen her at the supermarket. <laughs> she's not somebody that scares me. 
And I've been a Democrat my entire life. I dem exited in 16 after the Bernie fiasco. But the reality is in Florida, we have closed primaries. And I live in an extremely gerrymandered blue district. And the only way to beat Debbie Wasserman Schultz is in the primary. That's it. There's no other way to do it. The numbers just aren't there. And so it's a strategy. We don't really have any other option. But no, that's not my platform. I don't affiliate with the Democrats in theory and in policy or any other way. Well, you've been amazing to me because when we look at the way the tribalism is, and that's a word that I know some people bristle at, and how partisan the world has become and the contradictions within each of the parties and the battles that take place not only in social media, but quite frankly, in the mainstream media where they put on this dog and pony show of you're bad and hey, don't look at my closet. There's not a lot of solutions, even in the alternative media world right now. You've got a lot of people taking shots. They're just throwing out all the things that are wrong and they're really not focusing on the solutions. But you've been very much a solutions-based person this entire time. Talk to me about what it's like to live in a world where people have stopped using critical thinking, they've stopped discussing things, and they're living in a bumper sticker world of negativity. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate. You know, it's almost like for those, it's really very matrix-like sometimes. I feel like red pill, blue pill, and those of us that are trying to have a civilization in Zion And again, that has nothing to do with the state of Israel and Palestine. I'm specifically referencing the matrix qualifier. Those of us that are just trying to live our lives in the reality have to constantly be contending with the people that refuse to see what has happened over the past 40 years. And that has been this gradual shift to the right, but also in a very authoritative way. And that's when it freaks me out when people are just so willing to just accept a government narrative and just go along with the program. And the tribalism is really bad as far as the partisan part of this is concerned. You know, that's a good word for it. It's very tribal. It's our team, our team, our team. They're not willing to use critical reasoning skills. And they don't realize that the party stands for nothing anymore. They stand for nothing. They don't propose anything. They're constantly just setting it up or presenting a situation where we just have to fight the Republicans. We're always on defense, even when we have a majority. It's this constant battle when it doesn't even need to be. And that should be a sign to people that they're not fighting for anything. They're doing nothing. And yeah, I've always looked at this as my campaign was a service-based campaign. We run a little service organization here, but we're just doing things that need to be done. Obviously, predominantly at a local level, but I'd love for that to be a paradigm. It's funny you say that because... You and I have lived through our entire lives in the neoliberal era. You realize that we have known nothing other than the neoliberal era from the minute we were born to this very second. And that service idea and being able to serve the community. This is rare. This is not normal. We're trying to look beyond just the partisan world, but yet that is all you're getting fed from media. We've got mutual friends where the party is all that is talked about. Yeah. And we've got a climate crisis. We've got a healthcare crisis. We've got a pandemic we're still clawing out of. We've got a vaccine distribution setup that was just absolutely reactionary instead of proactively done. I feel like everything we're doing right now, no matter how bad it is, it will be finger pointed back to the other guys did something we didn't like, so it's wrong. Yeah, they're not interested in finding solutions. There's two things going on from within the political world. Obviously, they don't want to do anything because they all answer to the same corporate special interests. So they can just sort of keep stirring the pot and not actually cooking anything, right? Like they could just sort of look like they're doing something. And then from the perspective of people that are outside of that, we put so much emphasis and idolization on political electoral politics. Like that's such a small aspect of how our world should work. It shouldn't be the be all end all. And I think that people do that because it almost alleviates personal responsibility. 
you're not having to do anything or it's not your fault, it's the government. It's an easy solution. It's an easy answer. Okay, the reason things are wrong is because the government screwed up. And that is a problem. Don't get me wrong. That's definitely a problem. But electoral politics is just one element of what we need to be doing in terms of a real revolution. That's just part of it. And I think people just get very hung up in that. And we tend to take a very local approach and just try to be making differences as much as we can locally. But people just want to sit there and bicker with each other and point out problems. You bring up a great point. The idea that somehow or another, we are going to have a revolution by voting our way there. It's unfathomable to me how many people just expect the Democratic Party to suddenly do what they want it to do or to suddenly have a third party out of nowhere that's just going to make an electoral solution possible. And what are the seeds of revolution? What are the things that need to be there in order to even sustain direct action? Forget even revolution. Let's just talk about real, honest to God, in the streets, direct action that doesn't fizzle out as soon as your vacation time dries up. And we don't have the systems, the mutual aid, the legal aid, the shelter in place. We don't have any of the things that it would take to really fight back against a corrupt system to meaningfully sustain a long-term direct action to take the country back. Right. And it just seems to me part of that is that local care work that you're talking about doing. Yeah. You can't have revolution without having those systems in place behind the scenes to support those revolutionaries that are willing to put it all on the line. And we just don't have that flavor in this country right now. No. And I think a lot of it is by design. A lot of it is by complacency. I don't know if you're familiar with Bo with a fifth column. Yes. I love him. He is my Mr. Rogers. One of the things that he's always talking about and very much so preaches is this idea of forming coalitions and networks and creating this sense of who is your team, who are your people, and starting to build that. And I think that that's so important. And it's funny because you'll have people that are so pro-Second Amendment because we need to be able to rebel against the government, but yet you're okay with them taking away so many of our other rights and keeping us from being able to assemble. We're really being stifled in so many ways right now. And so the only way around it is to build coalitions. I look at it like a spider web. And every time you make another connection, it just makes it stronger. Hmm. And I'm just trying to be like a center of a web and just constantly building connections and trying to make each policy something that we have a lot of people behind. And that's the other thing is I do it per policy. And whereas most of the left is you're either on our team or you're not on our team. And I don't work that way. I work on who's willing to support this issue and get on board with this and let's do this. It's funny you say that. Stephanie Kelton, who we've talked about on your show. Sure. She has this take and she actually put it to AOC and regardless of whether folks love or dislike AOC, she made a great point. She said, the issue isn't whether or not we can finance a bill. Financing's the easy part. It's a matter of whether we can resource the bill, whether we can get the votes, whether we have the people that will actually support this legislation. And what you're saying is building coalitions by policy yeah, versus by Team Jersey. And I think that's a really profound statement because it goes hand in hand with what both Stephanie and AOC have put forward, which is we need the votes. We need the resources to do this stuff. Yeah. Echo chambers aren't going to get that done. No. And what's so infuriating is that not only do people want to live in an echo chamber, but they completely chastise you and shame you when you dare to step outside of it. Now, I personally don't care, but I do think that it prohibits conversation and therefore is a deterrent to progress. But for example, at a local level, I've become friendly with a gentleman in the Republican club here. He's old school Republican. But one of the things that they are very, very big supporters of is Everglades restoration. And I met him at a protest against an oil drilling situation that we were having in the Everglades. And so that's an ally on that. And yet, every time I've been seen assimilating or talking or whatever, I've had people on Team Blue talk to me about, you know, he's such and such and such and such, and he supports Trump. And I'm thinking, 
this is why we cannot have nice things. That is the reason we can't have nice things. And it's very frustrating. And I've said it before, I will go on any platform, talk with any person, work with anybody whatsoever if I believe that it will help move things forward. And that's just how I play. Well, it explains why you're on this show, because at least I'm willing to just joke. I think that it's funny. The thing you brought up just now is really powerful because Bernie Sanders, who everybody loves and loves to hate. Yeah. Bernie Sanders has made a career of doing these little amendments and working across the aisle. And one of the issues, and I want to be very clear on this, it's one thing to work across the red blue aisle. But there is another thing that I think sometimes gets mixed up in the sauce, and that's the red-brown alliance versus the red-blue. And what I mean by that is, hey, Adolf Hitler seemed to have a pretty good plan on how to get VW bugs manufactured quickly, right? Let's work with Adolf Hitler to build cars. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're not going to go that route, right? Right. And that would be that red-brown alliance. And that was the difference between what you're saying and what I think a lot of people mistakenly confuse for the red-brown alliance. But what you're talking about is you're not suddenly becoming a red-brown. You're talking about getting shit done. Yeah, it's per issue. It's like build your team on whatever the issue is because you find that there's very unlikely bedfellows in different things. As much as people would like to label us and put us all in teams, everything's more of a spectrum. And people, for the most part, in the bell curve, if you're looking at it, support the things that we're supporting. For the most part, people support that. So then why can't this get done? Well, you've got electoral politics and people that are bought and paid for that are standing in the way. And then you have this tribalism that keeps everybody wanting to just be on a team. People like to be on teams. People like to have an enemy. There has to be a bad guy. People are very simple-minded. And so Again, we are in a society lacking some serious critical reasoning skills. It's very frustrating. And I just feel like must stay the course. So it's hard. We're fighting for Zion. And again, not having anything to do with Israel and Palestine. It's so funny you say that. I've gotten myself into audiobooks. My eyes have started failing me. Same. And do you remember that scene where Neo has the thing popped into the back of his neck? He goes, I know jujitsu. Yeah. I know how to fly an Apache helicopter. I feel like information is available to people to learn. We could be learning and changing the narrative. Yeah. There's always somebody smarter than you, more well-read than you. And thank goodness. So there shouldn't be an ego thing. I think that one of the key issues that we didn't touch on that we did peripherally touch on that is it goes beyond just the us versus them thing. It also comes down to ego. Oh, yeah. And the fact that you don't want somebody to know something that you didn't already know. Yeah. It's just wanting to be right as opposed to wanting to be happy. (laughs) That kind of brings me to the subject that I hold dear, and that is the MMT side. Years ago, I started walking on the shoulders, being lifted up by these giants that did this stuff when nobody was paying attention. You could count the number of people doing MMT on one or two hands. Yeah. Now you've got it in the mainstream. You've got Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, on a New York Times bestseller list. People are out there going to book clubs to learn about macroeconomics. Who does that, right? And now it is becoming a thing. And one of the things that drew me to you, obviously, is the fact that you're open to this, that this is something that you feel is important. And I started watching what you did on social media more. And while we had some disagreements over UBI, ultimately, it was really powerful for me to see you have such a positive, uplifting disposition. That's so funny. Most people that know me would probably never say that. That's really Yeah, funny. but I heard you laughing when we did our interview. So that changes everything. You really put off a very positive vibe and being able to see somebody like yourself. We had so few people that were running for office that were even willing to talk about these things. And there's a slew of people now. We're watching some really good folks stepping up into that range and talking about the broad possibilities of what we could do. Now, granted, it's the 11th hour. Climate change isn't waiting for us to figure this out. What got you to even know about MMT? To me, this is a really exciting thing. Yeah. Actually, 
I'm not saying that I wouldn't have learned it anyway or heard about it anyway. You were one of the people that I first heard talking about it, actually. This was probably, I want to say like 2015-ish. So I had heard about it, but really, I'm very thankful that I was a brand new Congress candidate. And one of the things that they had for brand new Congress was there was this summit. And we all got together in Washington and they had brought in experts to talk on different topics. And one of those topics was MMT. And so that was when I really got it from a lecture standpoint, like a real thing. But I'm pretty open in general to anything involving us being screwed over because I just feel like at this point, that's the obvious answer. So when I see that you can pay to be in war 24-7, we can afford all of those things, but yet we have people living on the streets that can't eat. So there's obviously something wrong there. Again, critical reasoning skills. So I think that to me, you could have called MMT whatever you called it. You could have called it blah, 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 and said, (laughs) this is how we've been living and you've been being lied to for your whole life. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds about right. And so it really wasn't that far of a stretch for me. Anything having to do with the idea that you've been being lied to, we've been doing it wrong. Obviously, we could have better things, but we don't want you to. That to me is the basis of everything that how I see the universe. So to me, the theory of MMT is secondary to me knowing that clearly we've been being lied to all this time and we can have nice things. See, you just nailed it. So it's funny because I serve often as a bridge between these brilliant academics and the public, right? Yeah. They're using critical theory, which I am just not a genius at at all. We have limitations. Yes. And I found mine. (laughs) But the thing is, though, that this is an important juxtaposition here. This is where I think the meat of our discussion needs to go. Because on one hand, I'm working with people that have a career goal of redefining the relationship we have with people and money and understanding how to use it for the benefit of society. At the end of the day, folks like yourself and myself who are dealing with regular people that don't have 16 hours to invest in some deep dive in philosophical debates, we just know we'd like to eat. We just know that we want to have a roof over our head. We want to be safe. We don't want to be living under a bridge trying to figure out how we're going to get medical help. And so the divide of needs versus theory breaks down pretty quickly. But what has happened, and I think this is the other critical part to that, is because we have been lied to and propagandized for our entire life, how do you as a candidate talk to people so that they understand that you're fighting for their needs and that you don't get held back by their diminished expectations because they don't understand that, yes, the federal government can in fact spend on anything we need, as long as the real resources exist to back that up. How do you make that case? It's hard. And I often also use the term that you use, which is a bridge, because I feel like I am definitely a bridge in my little spider web scenario. Like I'm trying to connect as many people to as many people by talking about issues. For me, I'm just me. You know, I just talk how I talk. I'm not a politician. I'm just a person. And so I just generally talk to people and meet them where they are. It's funny because I'm not particularly social. I'm like this antisocial extrovert. So like I'm very good socially, but I just don't particularly want to be social. But it's really a matter of meeting as many different kinds of people and as different places that you can more so than being in the echo chamber. And I think that that's what most people do when you're dealing with electoral politics you're dealing with a very certain sub-segment of the population that's even involved in electoral politics in the first place. We have very low participation here. So most people are not even in that world. They don't even necessarily know who their representatives are. So I generally focus a lot more on reaching those people that don't have this sort of tribalism that are just people that Yeah, they want to know how we can build a community garden and how are they going to be able to afford not working for two months and they don't have health care. 
So I try my best to really focus locally, at least outside of political, electoral politics. But dealing with those people is challenging. It really is. I find it challenging. I generally just do what I'm doing. I also think a big part of it for me is communicating just by how I live and what I do and just putting out there as much information as possible. But there's definitely a certain category of people that are too far gone that will not be able to wrap their head around it for a lot of reasons. One is, I think, primarily they can't fathom that they've been being lied to their whole life. It's very Truman Show-like. Yes. People don't yes. want to know. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. It's crazy you say that because I have very low tolerance, to be fair, for people that whine and complain about the way things are. And just like a boss that his employee comes up to him and whines and complains, I've always been trained by what I consider to be good leaders, that if you come to me with a complaint, come to me with a potential solution. I don't want to just hear you whine. And when I bring MMT to people to say, listen, there's a reason why this is playing out the way it's playing out. And MMT is a part of that story. It's not the whole story, but it is a large part. It's a tool that has been used against us this false idea that we're broken, we can't do nice things. And so the lie is self-perpetuating. We then in turn put the idea of the household budget scenario where you can't spend past your credit card limit. These are the moments that everyone is inundated with. And we are run ragged. We are lied to. Think about all the silly propaganda, Russiagate, and Unless you disconnect from that, you're going to continue to consume toxic non-knowledge. And so I can understand skepticism. I really can. But I guess the question is, when you understand power dynamics, you understand how the U.S. came to be, how do you feel we as people can overcome entrenched powers? We're looking to Congress to write laws, but They are bought and paid for by those lobby firms. How do we overcome that stranglehold that makes it so these things are less and less possible? And I will tell you, as bad as Joe Biden's career has been, and as bad as many of his stances are currently, for example, refusing to legalize marijuana, you'd have to be an absolutely brain-dead zombie to say that. And that's where Biden sits, so that tells you what I think about him. But they're still talking about how are we going to pay for infrastructure? So I guess my question to you is, with the propaganda so strong, with the powers that be entrenched, how do we make moves when we're looking at electoral politics and these people that are getting elected using this money? How do we overcome that? We are doing that. That's the thing. I think that this conversation, your platform, my platform, all of that, think about how much that has changed in the past five years and where we are in terms of the amount of people that do know versus where we were. So this is what we have to be doing because it can't be done just through electoral politics. That's an element of it. Again, I support doing all of these things simultaneously. That's one of the things that's so frustrating is that then people sort of judge each other based on what their strategy is to help problem solve. And when you're saying, how do we overcome this narrative? I don't think there's one way. I think we're all doing that in our own way. 
And we need to support each other instead of punch sideways a lot of the time and worry about how other people are trying to help and you work on how you're trying to help. And I do believe that if everybody was kind of doing that, eventually it would all get connected up. If everybody is all working to help people. But again, there is the ego issue. We were talking to Lauren Ashcraft last night on our show and she's sensitive. She's a very sensitive person. She doesn't have the thickest of skin. And I realized that in order to be involved in this nonsense political game, in order to be successful, you have to have a small ego and thick skin. And most people have one or the other, but not both. It's difficult to find that. But you can't have a big ego because it has to be about the solution and not you getting credit for it. So for me, I think that what we're doing is the solution right now and just keep doing it. But we have come very far. Yeah. In some ways, you'd have to be lying to yourself to not think that it's clear because you do see that kind of awakening happening. I think, though, that where the struggle comes in is once the awakening occurs, then, okay, so now what? And then my fear is that as we're radicalizing people with the truth, yeah. Once that wake up call happens, how do you keep them from getting depressed and checking out because they see power as so firmly entrenched and they don't see the kind of progress that they want to see? What would be your words of encouragement to someone that sees the world like that? You know, it's hard because I see this in two different ways. One, it's that sort of Chris Hedges we don't fight fascists because we know we can win. We fight fascists because they're fascists. I don't know another way to do anything and I'm not going to just do nothing, right? So this is the menu right now, right? How do you sleep better at night? Do you sleep better knowing that you're working on the side of justice or do you want to just say, eh, we can't win, so forget it? And maybe that's true. Maybe we can't. Maybe we're just sort of running on a hamster wheel and we can't. But for me, I know that at a minimum, that I'm doing things locally, that it's helping people. So that's why I think it's so important for people to be involved locally. And I always tell people, especially young people, find whatever issue that you're passionate about and align yourself with some organizations that are doing work in that. Because the way to stay positive is to see that you're making a difference. And you're really only going to see that locally in terms of really seeing satisfying results. That generally is something that you see. So I think that getting involved locally is the key thing for people to maintain some sense of satisfaction in what we're doing. We have two nonprofits, Real Progressives Inc. and Real Progress in Action. And both of them serve two different purposes. Real Progressives is designed to educate and work in the policy space to help break down the brilliant work of these geniuses that come up with this stuff and then turn it into useful stuff for regular Jane and Joe six pack. That's side A. Side B is real progress in action, which is designed to help out with the political space and advocating and lobbying and organizing on the other. And so in one fell swoop, and I tell you this all in one sentence, sort of, because I think that if you understand where I'm going with this, it'll put it in better context. As a former Republican, the one thing that I loved about the Republicans was that you never had to kick them in the ass to get them to jump in and do stuff because they were committed to whatever it was that they were committed to. The left, not so much. The left talks a good game. They put their fist in the air. They bring out the signs to the protests. But when it comes time to do the behind the scenes work, I think that we have a dearth, a lack of participation, not only within the electoral space, but really within the organizing space. There's far too many people that expect to walk into Google or Microsoft and have everything already laid out for them. They sit down, here's your computer, here's your phone, here's your business cards, go change the world. As opposed to in a grassroots world where you have to come in and you actually have to be the one that does the brainstorming session. You're the one that has to write the stuff down. And I think that it's that moment where, why are we getting our butt kicked constantly? Well, damn it, they're organized. We're not. Yeah. And what does it mean to be organized? Do you think it just means knocking on a few doors? No, it's a lot more than that. To get to the point where you knock doors, you had to write up the brochures. You had to 
do the campaign. You had to plan the fundraising. You had to do all that stuff in the back seat. And I think people really expect to just wake up and walk in. And if it's not ready there for them, they lose interest. And that's a shame. Yeah, I see that. And I also think that we talk about the left and the right in terms of, yeah, Republicans will fall in line every time and they'll get behind whatever they need to get behind. And they are organized and they do have a much better sense of what they're trying to do because they actually have a platform that they're working toward. I don't agree with their platform, but they have one and they work it. The problem is, is that we don't have a left. There is no labor party in this country. So let's say we view the Republican electoral centrist government as the center of their thing. They actually wield power for a Republican agenda, and then they get their minions to fall in line, and that trickles all the way down to the guys in the pickup trucks with the Trump signs. The problem is there is no left that's doing that. There is no central structure of power on the left. There's nobody on the left that's really disseminating any sort of movement. So the left is therefore left with the only option, which is building from the ground up. And that is hard to do because it relies on people taking initiative and certain amount of people with leadership skills and not just ideas. And there's a certain skill set involved. So the reason the Republicans are successful is that they have a hierarchy that's in place with a central form of government essentially to themselves that they disseminate. There is no left. So we don't have that. And that's the biggest problem. I've been spending a lot of time digging into both the fraud structure of Wall Street through our program called the New Untouchables, the Pecora Files. But I'm also in preparation for a new podcast we're going to be doing, probably starting in June, July timeframe called The S Word. And it's all about helping regular people get over the propaganda of what struggle requires and what socialism is. And just give them an education that they don't reject, that they don't push back from. We were joking about it the other day that if we were really going to try to break out Marx's capital and all the other Marxist writings from the Russian Revolution and Rosa Luxemburg and all the others from back in the day, we'd be in tough shape because that's some deep water. And nobody's going to build a movement based on things that require a PhD level understanding of. It's not realistic. There's a reason why there's only a few PhDs out there. Part of it is the way society is structured to make it impossible for some to get it. But the other reason is not everybody's called to do it. Not everybody wants that. And so how do you create a movement based on using words that are so foreign to the average person that they just reject you no matter what the content is because You're framing it in such a way that it is elitist, that it is beyond them. And quite frankly, they got 10 minutes to give you and they don't want to hear the shit. How would you bridge the divide in terms of creating that left space? Because you realize critical theory and all the stuff the great philosophers do is very important in its own right. It frames how you think through problems. But for other people that are living more hand to mouth, how would you create that left? with that army. To some extent, that's what I feel like we're doing here on our platform. And I very much believe that any successful revolution in this country is going to be based on labor. And that what we really need is a huge labor movement and a general strike. And then what you'll have is people coming out in support of labor. I mean, ultimately, that is the backbone of this country. And That is something that has been completely disregarded and abused for so many years. So the way to do it is to form people based on economic struggle and strife and oppression and not tribalism and get people to see that we are all in the same club. And unless you're in charge, you're in our group, right? This is how it works. And I think that the way that is done is through labor. And this is my contention about the idea of forming third parties. And I've said it many times. And this is also the problem with the Green Party and why they can't get any sort of momentum going is it's too niche. It's a niche thing. Even just the name of it, the Green Party. Anybody who is, let's say, a right, more conservative populist type person isn't going to go join the Green Party with the hippies. 
But would they join a labor movement? Yeah, they very well might join a labor movement. Any effective progress, revolution, or third party in this country is going to need to be based on labor. So we spend an inordinate amount of time, we have a segment on our show called Uplifting Labor, talking about a lot of these issues, but that's what I want people to understand. We need people in yellow vests in this country. Yes. We have a guy on our team named Eric Kessner who works with Yellow Vest America, and he's a guy who is on our activist team. And I'm excited about seeing where this takes us because we're struggling, right, to get people to stop trying to be big fish in small ponds and trying to get them to fold in and work together. Yeah. And we've taken the time to build these things. It'd be great if we could fill them up with people that really want to make change. Yeah. What is it like? as a woman in this space in particular, trying to make change? Are you feeling people are listening to you? How does it work? Okay. First, let me clarify that as a woman, and I do not know another adult woman that has not been violated in some way. And by violated, it's a spectrum of things ranging from just pervy jokes to forcible rape to Bill Cosby rape. But other than those kinds of things, I've never felt talked over. So for me, I'm just me and I'm just going to do my thing and let the chips fall where they may. I very much believe that we are only as strong as our weakest link. I very much believe that when everybody's doing well, everybody does well. (laughs) That's just how I see it. And so I will bring up anybody who is wanting to be in the direction of progress. Anybody who is wanting to contribute to what we're doing is somebody that I will promote. Because it's not about me. That's the thing. And this all comes back to the ego thing. And I think that that's very hard for people. People like their credit. And there's also a difference when we're talking about women that are being successful. It's funny. I see this in relation to men and women and also in relation to black and white race issue. You can be a successful woman, but are you being successful in a man setting and having to conform to a certain paradigm in order to have that success, sort of like a black person in a white business. Yes, they're successful and they're black, but they're still confined and working within this paradigm. And so my goal and how I'm choosing to live is I'm just sort of in my own little paradigm. I refuse to accept any of that nonsense. I look at Congress as my employees. I don't feel threatened by them. I don't feel intimidated by them. I feel generally irritated that they're so insubordinate. So I guess I don't intimidate easy is the answer. So I want to just say this. So there's two big things that come to mind here. There is a lady named Lua Yule who is a professor at Kansas, and she talks about how economics is a man's sport, so to speak. And it's interesting to watch the women that have risen to the top because they've had to master the role of being male. They've had to master the space of being male. So they not only have to bear the weight of being a woman, they also have to bear the weight of the culture and the language and the framing. Exactly. And so you bringing that up is so amazing. This brings me though to another completely non-political, I guess it could be political, but non-political thing that is even more fascinating to me. All right. And for those of you who have been on this little journey with me, you're going to appreciate this. So I'm a metalhead, but I also am a grateful deadhead and I Uh, like all kinds of music, right? I'm all over the map and I'm wearing right now as we're recording, I'm wearing a steal your face sweatshirt. Excellent. Most excellent. But I happen to be absolutely 100% bona fide obsessed with a band named Ginger, J-I-N-J-E-R. Okay. And they are led by one of the most dynamic, powerful, awesome attitude ladies you've ever seen in your life. And she can growl exactly like Lamb of God or Slayer. And then without even changing, she can immediately go to a high soprano note, clean, like beautiful. She could be your Mr. Rogers, so to speak. Right. And for me, I really enjoy it, right? Because I enjoy things that are different. I like people that are really good at what they do. And I enjoy watching beautiful art in whatever form it comes in. And it cracked me up because, see, our intro song to this is written by my brother and one of the volunteers, his name's Tim Yeomans, and Tim is the singer, and it's a homespun song, and the song is called See Through, and it's talking about 
the lies you tell me. And it's like busting through the lies. Well, that's what the entire show is about. And so I get this, oh my goodness, it's like acid in my ears. I can't, <laughs> I can't fast forward 20 seconds through the intro to get to the meat of this incredible podcast. Let me tell you the backstory. When I was drinking and I used to be a drunk, I'm talking about the blackout drunk, okay? Mm -hmm. And during the time where I got sober, this was the music my brother was playing. He was writing this music. This music was all about peeling back the lies. And so as I'm looking at Ginger, I didn't take the time at first to realize, well, these are Ukrainians. They have been hopping from place to place because they're in war-torn Ukraine. They've got people on the rooftops with sniper rifles. They've got planes coming through bombing. They've had to leave and go all over the place. And they're singing anti-war music. Damn it, if they're not a revolutionary band. Yeah. And listening to the fact that they're singing an anti-war message. There's this one song, How's Your View at the Top, as they watch a rich CEO hanging from the rafters. And it's just incredibly class-based, economic warfare, total revolution, and it's led by a woman. And dang on it, if she doesn't sound angry one minute and singing lullabies the next minute. It's just incredible. If you get a chance, check it out. I will. It's just one of those things where you kind of remind me of her. Oh, my God. Well, she's my hero. So this is a compliment in the most thorough way, okay? Oh, that's so sweet. There's this one part where she steps out on the stage and right when it goes to kick in, if you're a metalhead, folks, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> when the breakdown happens, your hair starts standing on end. This is what happens. And as soon as she does, she kicks her leg like a judo kick, drops into this. Rah, 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 rah. And I'm like, what the heck did I just see? This is the best thing I've ever seen. But she does it with so much swagger and so much strength. And so much confidence. You asked, how do you go to sleep at night? I listen to Ginger. <laughs> and really, that's ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters to me is, and I say this all the time, the only person's opinion of me that matters is mine. So if I'm good with me, then we're good. And that's it. I try my best not to concern myself with it and just do my thing. It's all I can do. Well, your thing <laughs> is really pretty awesome. And I got to tell you, I do my best to try and check out the different shows. I do a lot of things with Jordan Cherit and at Status Coup. I'm frequently on with the folks at Sputnik Radio on Political Misfits with Bob and Michelle. I'm also on with Jamarl and Shane Stranahan with the Fault Lines and kind of regular contributors. And so in that sense, I've got my own little echo chamber. And then, of course, we've got Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn from The Con that we work with for The New Untouchables. But this spider webbing, I want to connect more webs with you guys. I want to build more networks. Yeah, that's sort of what we're working on. So last week we had Wendell Potter on as a guest. Are you familiar with Wendell? Yes. Okay. And so the next thing you know, the other day he called Peter, you know, my partner, and Peter is now helping him work on basically pushing for single payer in Pennsylvania, like a whole Washington or what they've got going in New York. They're going to start pushing in Pennsylvania. And it was just this amazing connection that happened. So that is the revolution. This is the revolution. Very good. Well, I tell you what, do me a favor, please. If you can think of people that I need to connect with, don't be afraid to do a warm transfer because I really want to be more involved, more connected. I want to do the best I can to do the same. Well, hey, and this is what I told Lauren because Lauren Ashcraft just started a podcast called Biting Commentary. Because it's her kind of giving biting commentary and then it's also food based. <laughs> but I told her, and I'll tell you the same thing if you look at any of the people that we've had on our show, if you go back and look at our podcast and anybody seems interesting to you, I'd be more than happy to make a connection. You are a rock star because I'm <laughs> going to take you up on that. Absolutely. That's the whole point. Our new website's going to be going up any day. And one of the things that it's going to have is the change maker section, which you'll be on there. Anybody who's been a guest and it'll be like your picture and links to your stuff. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So like we've had authors on, so it'll be like a link to get the book or whatever it is. And so that'll essentially be what I'm offering you right now. It's not up and running, but anybody who we've done a podcast with, I can connect. Let me just say, because I know our chief operating officer, Julie Alberting, is also our webmaster. And one of the things she created was something very similar to this. It's our RP bookshelf. So we're in the process of expanding that. 
So it sounds like we're all kind of marching in the same direction. That's really awesome. Exactly. See, that's the thing. I do. I think that and I'm like you. I'm kind of a geek and I spend hours researching, going down rabbit holes and figuring something out. And I spend hours a day and most people don't have that time to do that. But one of the things that I do is when something's interesting, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a panel on that. Right now I'm in the process of forming an Israel-Palestine panel based on me needing to have a girl's intervention kind of situation. So I'm talking with Russia and just trying to get it set up. But yeah, everything that we do to provide information is a step in the right direction. This is just amazing. So this is a great way to end our time here together. Tell the people that are listening where they might be able to find you and other stuff you're doing. Yeah. So we have a podcast called Generational Change. That's generational with a J. And that is on YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. And then we're available on social media. We're usually updating what we're up to on Facebook. It's Jen Perlman. And on Twitter and Instagram, we're at JenFL23. And we have our local stuff. We want local people to get involved. Like this afternoon, we're doing a food distribution. So there's just different things that we're doing locally with our GenCore organization. And then all of the money that comes in through generational change is going into GenCore. From a nonprofit to nonprofit kind of world, let's find a way to do some work together. Absolutely. I'm still waiting to get my official, and I'm not a 501c3 because we endorse candidates. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And every time I check the IRS, it's like we're still backlogged from April from last year. And I paid them. I paid them my $50 to get my little 501c4. Just be careful. Remember one thing. The thing that they love is fines, fees, and penalties. Oh, yeah. So just make sure you touch your I's and cross your T's. Anyway, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And I hope we can do this again real soon. Absolutely, Steve. Always here. Awesome. Folks, Steve Grumbine, Jen Perlman, Macaron Cheese. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive. I want the truth!